Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Digitally Uploaded podcast. I'm Matt Sainsbury, Editor-in-Chief of DigitallyDownloaded.net, and with me this week, we've got a whole bunch of really cool people and Trent. What? Hello, Trent. Hello. <laughs> no, Trent's a pretty cool, cool person as well. I just had to do that. Sorry, Trent. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Yes. We also have Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. And we have Lee back from last week. He survived and apparently wanted to do it again. So hello, Lee. Surprise. How's it going? Good, good, good. So news for this week. Obviously, January is still a quiet month for news and not too much big stuff is happening. But um, I'll kick things off and I'll say that uh, there was a pretty cool announcement from Aussie Game Dev that came out this week that um, City of Brass, which is a particularly good rogue light first-person shooter thingy uh, on PC and PS4. It's coming to Switch as well, which is great because more games on Switch is good thing indeed. Um, I don't think anybody else here on the podcast has actually played it, just me. Um, but it is good, and hopefully everybody else can play it now. It's on the Switch because I highly recommend it. Uh, what about you, Matt? What's your pick of the news of the week? Um, is Would be that um, Trails... Uh, the Legend of Heroes Trails of Cold Steel 3 is finally, finally getting a Western release. Yes. However many years of waiting. Um, which is, I know we've talked about it on the podcast before, very good series of JRPGs um, and that I know you and I would both highly recommend. Um, but it is one very long ongoing story spanning four games and until now only two of those have been available in English so yes we'll be able to play the third one and maybe the fourth one after that fingers crossed uh, obviously you do I mean because they are direct sequels to one another you probably should play them in order luckily yeah. for people who haven't played the ones the releases on PC PS3 or PS Vita to date um, there is a there's a two pack isn't there coming with the first two uh, coming to PS4 I think next month is it next month uh, I want to yeah, say next month. So. Yeah. Two pack? I thought they were being released separately. Oh, were they? Anyway, they're both know. being released. That's the main thing. So you can play yeah. them. They're both about 80, 90 hour long RPGs. So, um, yeah, get in early and get get across the story. Once you get playing, you'll love it. And, uh, yeah, look forward to the sequel. Yeah. How many of those are there? There's four, two of which are Japan only to date, and um, two have been localized into English. So yeah, it's a lot of stories and stuff. Luckily, it's one of those rare JRPGs where the actual the length of the game is kind of justified. Um, as everybody knows, I tend to whinge when JRPGs are too long and don't deserve. I was, to be. I was about to point to your uh, your Kingdom Hearts. Uh, yeah, <laughs> your, your I, like I, for Kingdom Hearts, I should say. Well, the one I always talk about is Persona 5 being about, well, 50 hours too long, and it is. Um, but these games actually do justify how long they are because they are very epic stories and um, they actually don't waste time with content, uh, unnecessarily padding content and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Put aside the time to play them, but, yeah, make sure you put aside plenty of time to play them. What about you, Trent? What's your great bit of news for the week? 
Well, my great bit of news is just a five-second spiel on how Bandy Nankos announced, obviously, a new Dragon Ball Z. But the cool part about it is that it's going to be an action RPG, which the last action RPG Bandy Nanko announced was Digimon Survive, which was really cool, really exciting, different use of the IP. And so, you know, Dragon Ball Z is a bit stale lately with all the fighters and even past attempts at, you know, diversifying the ip so maybe they'll put a twist on it like digimon survive and it's going to be great and make people really live for the 90s again yeah i wouldn't count on that <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i've never I, I, to be honest i've never felt that bandai namco has done a great job with well anime stuff in general um <laughs> I, I yeah the the jump styles games uh, a great idea that are terribly executed. All the Dragon Ball Z fighting games have done nothing for me. Um, and, yeah, some of the other smaller anime stuff uh, that Bandai has done has been pretty cheap and nasty. So, you know, never you never know, never say never, but um, I would be surprised if it's as exciting as you're excited, Trent. <laughs> well, I have hope. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're a much more positive person than me. <laughs> what about uh, Soul Calibur? Oh, that's great. I'm not saying that Bandai Namco is bad. I'm just saying that the anime okay, stuff they do isn't, isn't particularly interesting to me anyway. I know they're fans, but yeah, especially Dragon Ball Z. I, I've never felt that that franchise was particularly well handed, handled by Bandai. I but don't know. That's, if the, that's wrong, the thing about I'll it, be... though. They don't have to. <laughs> they got enough of a fan base where it's like, yeah, uh, and, and I, I'll admit I'm among them. You know, I went yeah, and yeah. bought up, I bought the universe one and two. I ate it up. Even though I know at the end of the day, I'm just spamming Kamehameha or no, I take, I take that back. I was spamming that whatever freeze this death ball move was and just maxing out whatever stat did the most damage for that. And that's it. <laughs> you win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know there are fans for it and obviously it's got such a huge audience, but yeah. I mean, I'd be, I'd be quite pleased if I'm wrong about that. I'll be the first to admit that I'm wrong and I'll love the game and all that. But yeah, I'll wait until we get more details than a single tweet or whatever it was. That Bandai let it slip that they're doing it. It, it was um, a single tweet. A single tweet. There you go. No screenshots. No the teaser tweet yet. So <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. We'll probably find out more about it in the next week or two. Then. Um, all right, Lee, and we'll finish things up with you. What's your um, what's your pick of the news of the week? Well, in uh, in light of fighting games, we got a new Power Rangers fighting game coming out in April. It almost seems like yes. April Fool's Day, but <laughs> I, I, it's apparently from what I'm reading, it's um, going to be a little. It's not going to be as complicated as like your standard fighters, which is funny because if you watch the teaser trailer, the combat actually looks pretty standard. Like, it looks like the standard uh, insofar as like where in Street Fighter, like if you're in the neutral game, Smash Bros. terminology, I guess. But like, if a, a common thing is to like jump in, do an attack, and then do a low attack, go and then block. So it seems like very similar mechanics. Um, but it might it it might be a little easier. Um, it also is being produced by a uh, a company that did a mobile fighter, also for for Power Rangers. So um, there's there's word that it might just be kind of like a, a, a like a like their mobile game. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, to me, it kind of looked like Mortal Kombat or Injustice. Uh, like yeah. it was inspired by those games. It seems like the attacks have that kind of weight, and it looks like it's structured around that kind of flow as well, um, which is 
which is fine. I like Mortal Kombat. Uh, I'm sure Matt will have other opinions about whether games should be like Mortal Kombat, <laughs> but um, we've we've been fighting on the DDNet Slack about Mortal Kombat a bit <laughs> the last week, listeners, because yeah, I like it and Matt doesn't. So, <laughs> but yeah, if if Power Rangers does that, I'll be happy. I mean, all I, all I really want to do is beat up the Green Ranger with the Yellow Ranger. That's really all I want. <laughs> this is all I want in life. But, but green's my favorite color. You can't no, do green's that. the worst. <laughs> He's the worst. He deserves a beating. Well, here's here's what worries me about the way that it's phrased. Um, it sounds to me like it's going to be something like, uh, and you've seen this in other fighting games before, like a rock paper scissors system. Like you know how an in injustice is it injustice where like you enter the clash and then it's a rock paper scissors fight. Is that the same? Am I thinking of the, the same game? But anyway, that that sort of um, that doesn't sound like. The, the direct quote is the depth is knowing when to strike, not how. But, but that can mean that can mean anything. Seem, I mean, yeah, it could, it could mean anything. But it sounds to me like rock paper scissors. I don't know. I mean, that that could mean that it's a game that rewards people that play a more defensive game. Like you know, Dead or Alive is is much the same. Um, you know, as long as you're able to perform counters and stuff, you can play a very cagey game, which is yeah. which is good. I, I like fighting games that are more tactical like that. So that's fine. I'm I, I'm gonna withhold judgment on how it actually plays until I play it, I guess. But yeah, if it, if it's rock, paper, scissors, that's that's no big deal either. Most fighting games are based on some kind of rock, paper, scissors system. Oh yeah. Anyway. I mean at at any point in time in like even like a Smash game, it's basically rock, paper, scissors. Like if you both attack, you're gonna clash, you grab versus shield is paper versus rock, etc. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, let's let's wait and see how it goes. It might turn out to be good. I mean, let's face it, it probably won't. But again, all I want in life is to beat the living crap out of the Green Ranger. This is Matt. Why do you not like old RP, uh, old IP, like from the eighties or nineties? You just so you know. I love it. I love it. I grew up with Power Rangers, mate. I watched it all the time. I loved Power Rangers, except for the Green Ranger. Did you <laughs> like Chroma Squad? I did. It was good fun. But yeah, we might like come to... back. We might come back and talk about Power Rangers in uh, a future section of the podcast. We've got to go to some music now, otherwise we're going to get into a very long digression. We'll listen to some lovely tunes from Hatsune Miku, and we will be back to talk about. Oh, let's talk about Star Wars first this week.
Welcome back, everybody. So the biggest bit of the news that we didn't talk about in the last section because we wanted to use a whole section of the podcast to talk about it was EA because EA has done another EA and um, they're a very special company is good old EA. Uh, And they've gone and cancelled the big open world Star Wars project that they had in development, I want to say, by their Vancouver team, was it? Yeah, like usual. Was it their Vancouver team that was doing it? And they canned it. Um, this is news to me. What uh, what game was it? Oh, uh, it, it was a big open world Star Wars game that they were working on. This was the one that was... It was the was, was it was originally going to be that one that um, Amy Henning was working on um, with, with the Dead Space team. And they closed that studio down and moved the project over to another one of their teams and then turned it into open world project, uh, open world Star Wars game. And they've just announced this week that they've canned that. That's not going to happen. Um, why? Of course, we don't know because EA doesn't share details about, you know. <laughs> and the best part interest. is apparently they're working on another one. It's like, what? Well, the, the, a lot of people are, they're assuming that the reason that they're doing that is EA couldn't produce this game quickly enough. It would have been a very long um, development cycle and EA really needed another Star Wars game out quite soon. Well, so then they're reusing assets. It's a lot cheaper. So they've they've moved the project from that big open world game to something they can produce and release a lot quicker. And people are kind of thinking that it'll be around 2020, perhaps to go with the next generation of consoles and all that kind of stuff. So that's possibly the business reasons behind it. But um, yeah, it's, ju- it's just interesting. Um, EA obviously picked up the exclusive license for Star Wars across console and PC um, for a 10 year span. And in that, I think we're into the eighth year, seventh or eighth year now. Of, of that uh, exclusive agreement. And so far they've produced two games, <laughs> both um, Battlefronts and neither of them have been very good. So I can only imagine how absolutely pissed off Disney must be right now <laughs> with the way that um, their, you know, their most important franchise has been handled by EA. Um, and it's not good for, it's not a good look for EA either because I mean, nothing EA does is a good look for EA, but it's uh yeah, there's a lot of very angry Star Wars Wars fans out there. Well, right both now. those Battlefront games, they both had major issues, like the loot box scandal, like all that sort of thing. Like that's a, you know, that's a huge PR like nightmare for them. Like I'm surprised there's no clause in the, you know, thing for Disney to just pull the IP. Like they're obviously not managing it the way they used to manage their IP based games. Well, the thing is. Um... I don't think Star Wars fans actually want this big AAA blockbuster stuff anyway from their video games. I mean, 
people have fond memories of what happened with Star Wars under LucasArts beforehand, and LucasArts produced a lot of games. Um, not a lot of games were of super high quality as such, but they are often, you know, really well loved by Star Wars fans because they fed the fantasy and, you know, they, they explored different stories within the universe and all of that kind of stuff, which is what people wanted. I don't think EA's done any of that because of the two games that EA's produced, both of them are multiplayer shooters with very limited you know, sense of lore and world and, and stuff built around them. So Yeah, and like w when we were growing up watching Star Wars, right, who was the main character that you identified with? I mean, in anything, it's the protagonist, but of course it was Luke Skywalker. And that's the Jedi with the sword and the mind powers. And you got us playing as stormtroopers? Whose idea was that? I don't know. I just, I never understood like the reasoning behind why they chose that avenue, except for the, the ease of, you know, integrating an FPS and just slap in some Star Wars assets on there. But I think I, I think that was it. I think they had the um, the, the battlefield engine uh, and obviously assets and, and design elements and physics engines and all that kind of stuff. And they just decided, oh, let's just apply this to Star Wars. <laughs> and um, people will love it because we can put the Star Wars theme music over the top. But it didn't quite work out that way. And yeah, it's it's been really disappointing. I'm not as big a Star Wars fan of some people, but I did buy a lot of those games back in the day. Um, I really liked the, what was the Dark Force one? Um, where you played as the... Force Unleashed, I think? Force Unleashed, yeah, I like those ones. Those were good fun. Um, yeah, Star played, Killer. Played yeah, yeah, those were good. Um, I didn't even play them, but I thought it was a cool concept. And I enjoyed That's the, how a Star Wars game should be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's how the Star Wars games should be. They're, they're not brilliant games, but they're good fun and they really work with the universe and add to it rather than just you know, uh, exploit it. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm very disappointed with the way EA has handled Star Wars. And it's especially disappointing because EA knows how to look after licenses, or at least has in the past. Um, I always talk about how I wish that EA was the one that kept the Lord of the Rings license because EA did a brilliant job with Lord of the Rings and Warner Brothers has been a spectacular failure with Lord of the Rings. So, yeah. I mean, if you look back at what EA did with Lord of the Rings, it was those action games, which were great, those action RPGs. They also produced the two strategy games, which were honestly, um, you know, some of my favorite strategy games that have ever been produced. Uh, and they even made a Final Fantasy X style turn-based RPG, which was a lot of fun as well. So yeah, EA did a really good job with Lord of the Rings. And um, the I was hoping that they'd do similar with Star Wars, but they didn't. Would I mean, modern uh, EA actually do those type of games? Like all those games, are like Matt, they're all from like you know 2006 or 2007. Like you know that sort of era. Like you know EA is completely different to what it was back then. Like you know even their own you know games, like things like The Sims, like The Sims Two, The Sims Three, The Sims One. You know, you know yes, Sims has slowly degraded over time. Even the next numbered release, but nothing was as disastrous as the sims 4 in terms of the base package and you've got <laughs> things like you know sim city you know nothing was as disastrous as you know the you know the sd engine was great arguably and the game itself was just a mess and then you've got you know their other core franchises their first person shooters that sort of thing the same thing you know they've gone from making you know, games which people remember to games which are released quickly, horribly, and just not really that fun. So I, I don't think there is really any major, you know,
game publisher which can actually do this anymore, like actually do IP releases because there's no major publisher which has the resources to sink the time into it for one and for two to actually has actually a good team of developers making good games at the moment. There is one. Are you going to say uh, <laughs> the well, game? Are you going to say the publisher Matt hates? <laughs> no, this is, not, this is the publisher Matt loves. I was going to say Corey Tecmo. Yeah, Corey Tecmo does a brilliant job with licenses. <laughs> and I, I joke about it. I joked about it a little bit over the week on Twitter and whatever that I wish that Corey Tecmo was given the Star Wars license because who would not want a Star Wars Warriors game? Um, but I'm quite serious. Who would not want a Star Wars Warriors game? That would be absolutely brilliant. And See, I hate Warriors just because I can never get into the Warriors games when I play them because I've only played things like, you know, Hyrule Warriors and stuff like that. But even I would be, like, for a Star Wars one. Like, it just it would suit the IP. Like, it would oh, yeah, be perfect. Well. <laughs> yeah, it'd be absolutely perfect. I mean, if you look about it, uh, if you look at it, Star Wars is all about a big cast of really interesting characters and everybody has their favorite character and all that kind of stuff. And that always works well with the Warriors franchise or the Warriors um, structure because the Warriors structure is all about, you know, having a lot of uh, characters and picking the ones that you like and going onto battlefields and bopping stuff over their head. So, yeah, it would have been great. And I'm pretty sure that Koei actually said at one stage that they would love to have the Star Wars license too. So you never know. Maybe they'll get it. Um, like, who doesn't want to play as a Wookiee and, like, kill some stormtroopers? Indeed. Most people. <laughs> Most people don't want to do that. <laughs> the good news is, uh, I guess, EA unless they turn things around, they might not get an extension on that 10-year <laughs> exclusive contract. And that would mean within the next couple of years, the license would be open again. And hopefully Disney would learn its mistake uh, and then not give an exclusive uh, contract or con uh, an exclusive license away again, because that's just stupid to do. Well, it'll be and also I interesting to see if Disney takes things back in-house again, because they're doing well, that Disney with their film Dis side of things. Disney doesn't have a development business anymore. They got rid uh, of that. Yeah. They can rebuild it. They've done that, obviously, with their, you know, they've got their, you know, TV stuff is all, you know, in their Disney um, life or whatever it's yeah. called. And like they're moving a lot of stuff in-house in film and TV and stuff in terms of streaming. And they're going to be making those same quality shows which were on Netflix. So why can't they do yeah. that games again? Like, yes, they're building, game, but they've got money. Building up those kinds of studios is probably not worth their time or energy. Um, I, I would suspect that what e, uh, Disney would do would be more along the lines of what it does with Marvel and share the license around on a case-by-case -case basis with, um, with developers or publishers when they have a good idea, which is the best way to go about things. Um, and I think... Any, any license that you can look at, it's always better if there are multiple different takes on it. A good example, another good example is um, the Warhammer license used to be with THQ exclusively, uh, the old THQ, not THQ Nordic. Um, and then THQ went bust and that was a great thing for the Warhammer license because since then um, Games Workshop has been able to shop that around and we've seen a wide range of games. Some are not for me, others are not for other people, but overall the license is in a much healthier place because there is that variety of experiences out there. And we're seeing that with Marvel because we've got Koei Tecmo producing a Marvel game, we've got Square Enix producing a Marvel game, um, we've got the Lego Marvel games. So. That's the way to go, I think. And I think Star Wars needs to go that way as well because EA is a failure. 
It's an absolute fact. They couldn't even figure out that Bioware should make a Star Wars RPG. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah, that's... That's just... I don't know. Like, I I find it hard to rag on him without knowing like all the details, just because like I don't know. We can, we can only judge the output, and the output's not good. That's the yeah, point. yeah. No, this is this. That's true. That's very true. And uh, yeah, that's all EA's fault because <laughs> I, I don't like to rag on EA either because I did like EA once upon a time. But yeah, some of this stuff, like Trent was mentioning, um, whatever direction that company's taking at the moment isn't gelling well with me. Let's put it that way. Well, the funny thing is, you know, everybody's kind of going with that same flow that EA kind of pioneered insofar as like loot boxes and DLC and all that. I mean, they were the first ones to have Sims 4, D was it Sims 4 or 3 or whatever, <laughs> DLC for DLC. I mean, it's brilliant from a marketing standpoint, I guess, but, you know, because you've, you've already got their hook, you've, they've already got your, their hooks in you. So only, only as so long as people enjoy the game, once they stop enjoying the game, then all that DLC and monetization um comes to a catastrophic halt as they found with that Star Wars game. Because yeah, the fundamental yeah. reason people that did not like the DLC, the loot boxes, is not because the loot boxes were there, it was because the game was pretty poor. Um, because, yeah, uh, you look at Overwatch or any number of other games, people don't have a problem with loot boxes in those those games. They only have or Pokemon Go. Or Pokemon Go. People only have an issue with loot boxes in um, in the games they don't like, and they really did not react well to that Star Wars one. So Yeah. That's oh, the thing, man. like, yeah, they, they are going to just, there's always going to be someone to buy them. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, we'll go to some music. Um, yeah, let's get some music from Star Wars. Let's get that copyright strike going. Um, <laughs> and we will it's come back. Make Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we do get copyright striked a little bit for the Miku stuff when it goes up on the YouTube. We don't get copyright striked for much else, but we're sure it's going to get copyright striked once we do a Star Wars bit of music. But anyway, let's do it. Let's be brave. We'll come back after the break and talk about something a bit different.
And welcome back, everybody. Okay, let's talk about Nintendo Switch because that's a topic we never talk about on digitally, digitally downloaded. Um, we don't like the Switch at all, do we, Matt? Nope. No, we hate it. Uh, <laughs> Terrible console. Terrible. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, this week for people who are subscribers to the wonderful online service that Nintendo provides, especially if you're a Smash fan, um, that was slight sarcasm. But if you subscribe to that service, you get the free NES games each week or each month, sorry. And um, you mean you get was, the free online? You get the free <laughs> the free online and the free NES games, free in um, inverted commas. But yeah, they, that was updated this week, and you got. Two games, wasn't it? It was like Link Two and something else, wasn't it? Um, yeah, Zelda Two and Blaster Master was. That's right. Two, two very uninspiring games. I might wait till next month to load that app back up again. But anyway, uh, you did get more games, and then the sleuths that love to play around with the back end of the Nintendo Switch also discovered recently that there is code, or is there, there's provision in the code for Super NES games as well. Um, and I think Nintendo did confirm that they were going to bring Super NES games to this service at some stage. Um, but, you know, now we've got kind of firm details that that's going to happen. And that's that's a pretty exciting thing because I think we can all agree that if this online service continues to only offer NES games, we're all going to tap out sooner rather than later, especially since you don't get to play Smash anyway because Smash Online sucks through this service. <laughs> that's fair to say, isn't it? <clears throat> well, Nintendo I could have heard a online game, and you know we could all play that. I'm just not going to say anything on that. <laughs> Being in America, <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, obviously, if you subscribe to the subscription services of Xbox and PlayStation, you get new games to play. Um, actually, new as in within the last year, and they have those on a monthly cycle as well. Um, Nintendo's idea to do a subscription virtual console is a good idea, but I think it's a little bit ridiculous to just leave it at NES games. So the super, the the sooner these Super NES games can come, the better. Um, but looking at that list of Super NES games, which you can find easily enough on the internet if you want, um, I don't know, nothing on there for me much, really. I mean, I've already got twenty versions of Super Mario Kart. I don't need a twenty-first. I think it's so far the list was pretty much the exact same stuff, which is actually on like the mini snares. Yeah, minus the JRPGs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> minus all the games that I actually played on the mini Super NES. Um, there's no Final just... Fantasy 3 on it. There's no Mother on it, Earthbound, whatever oh, uh, on it. There's Breath of Fire 2. There's Breath of Fire 2, yes. Which I'm is great for uh, people who haven't played Breath of Fire 1. Sorry, what was that? I was uh, surprised to see Kirby Superstar on there. Nobody's going to buy Kirby Star Allies after that. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they keep popping out all this this DLC. It's so weird how yeah. they're doing that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, are you a subscriber to the online service, Matt? I think yes. you are, aren't you? Yeah. I am. How have you found the value of the free NES games each month to be so far? Um. Is it good content? <laughs> I've pl I played a lot of Twin B. That's a good game, Twin B. That's a good game. Yeah. Um, and that's about as much. There's a lot of a lot of things on there that uh, games on there that I like, and then I'm like, I should play that. I'm glad that that's there, and then I never actually do. <laughs> 
That's like my Steam library. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the thing. I think that because those games are, are so old, people have nostalgia for them. Um, you know, people people have fond memories of playing them at some point of time, but it's a little hard to justify the time to sit there and actually play them now because, let's face yeah. it, most, most NES games are... Are interesting from an archival and historical point of view, but aren't particularly interesting in terms of how they play this day in this day and age. Yeah, they haven't aged well, most of them. And even yeah. with the like the things that the NES Online has built in, like to say the save in here and stuff, they're kind of still too clunky to make those games enjoyable now in a way that's for any anything other than nostalgia yeah yeah and yeah i guess that's a kind of the reason that it'd be good if the super NES stuff starts to come because a lot of those super NES games people can still enjoy playing today they're still very playable and enjoyable and it was kind of the pinnacle i guess of the 2d era of video game design so when games got good <laughs> yeah games games were at their best then um well i i gotta say something about this particular gaffe on Nintendo's part, and I call it a gaffe, I've kind of been sharpening my knife for this one, because if you look back at like Xbox and PlayStation, they had online stores that kicked ass. Like those games were awesome fun. They had a great arcade. Like I played, what was it? Magic the Gap, whichever MTG game was on Xbox. That was like all I played on my 360 for a while. Um, you don't have that with, with Nintendo and it's been how long since like they've they've seen other companies set a better example and it's so weird i really think it's it's a weird contrast for them just because they tend to be the ones that are setting good examples especially in in uh in today's age um so i don't know it just it, the fact that they had they had to come up with something basically they had to say okay well we got to jump on board with this uh this online service thing you know we got to really charge charge them monthly it's great revenue um, but we actually have to sell them something. Oh shit! Um, <laughs> we got these files laying around. A uh, bunch of well, not even a bunch. They're well, look, they're still on this floppy drive. Um, <laughs> you know, like it, I don't know. The fact that they they say, okay, well, you got to buy this to play Super Smash Brothers, assuming that you can actually play it. I still think that's kind of silly too. But I, it, the fact that it's also one of the only games that actually has online playability. I mean, okay, yeah, you got Diablo 3, fine. But that could have been hosted on Blizzard servers. Um, but I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, we, 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 can, we, can talk about, we can talk about Smash Brothers at another stage, I think. But I, I, because I, I think a lot of the problems that Smash Brothers is facing are exclusive to Smash Brothers. For some reason, Nintendo's team that looked after that game maybe struggled with the online code or something because other teams that Nintendo have done a good job with the online, like uh, Splatoon runs fine uh, on the Switch online. Um, Mario Kart runs fine on the Switch online. Even here in Australia with our um, internet experience that we get here. So I think uh, a lot of the issues that Smash are facing uh, is facing a kind of a result of Smash rather than Nintendo service. But I think, I don't know, I think with regards to this whole charging for online thing and then giving somebody people something extra, which is fine, you do need to do that. I think Nintendo's done the right thing going down the virtual console route because that's where a lot of Nintendo's uh, strongest content is in a way that Nintendo then doesn't need to go and start paying, you know, third party 
developers or publishers to give away their stuff for free. I think this is the right way of going about things. Um, you, you nailed it by I, saying it was uh, an archival and historical. That's that's the real value. But I well, exactly, and thing. I think. And I think that's the thing. Releasing these games at the rate of two per month is a little bit silly. I think what Nintendo should be doing is releasing maybe, you know, across a whole host of different platforms, at least one game per platform per month. So if, for example, if you had like um, Game Boy, Game Boy Advance, NES and Super NES on there, um, and then you release one game for each of those four platforms every month, then suddenly that system starts to show a lot of value. And Soldier Boy is going to beat him to the punch, though. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think this this online thing that Nintendo is doing is still not good value. I think the Super NES thing that's on the way will help, but I still think there needs to be more stuff done. The problem um, is a lot of people are obviously jaded because all this stuff is was on the Wii U. Like, it's already been released. But Nintendo's problem is, you know, um, the reason why, you know, PlayStation and Xbox were are so great now is because they've been using basically the same architecture for so long. Like, basically, they're computers now. There's not really, they're not really drastically different each generation. So Nintendo's got this, you know, we're using this different stuff now. We're doing this. It's completely different to what we are doing for so long. And then they have to figure out how to do all the NES and the, you know, emulation and all that stuff again. And then people are like, well, all these games you're trickling out and all of these games were on the Wii U. Why can't I get all those games from day one? And so people are really jaded because of that. I definitely think we're probably going to start now they're working out on SNES stuff. Hopefully we'll start seeing NES stuff a lot quicker. And there's definitely been a few NES games which I really want to play but haven't picked up the app yet because they're newer. Like I think there was like some sort of like RPG or something I never even heard of like that sort of thing like that's the value which i've seen so far but yeah i just think if they were a little bit quicker maybe people would have been a little bit more adaptive to it and it's about the variety of platforms i really think that the nears by itself isn't enough um because it is such an old console and it's so uh, like matt said most of the games haven't held up very well at all um it's aged and it's really only there for people that are really hardcore retro game fans, which is not most people. Um, there's no reason that the Switch can't run N64 and GameCube games. I do not know why Nintendo is not working on these things because there's a lot of stuff there that they can tap into and they're just not. And like you said, um, people got used to having virtual consoles thanks to the Wii U and the 3DS. Uh, look at my 3DS and I've got about 50 or 60 Game Boy games sitting there. And that's good. That's great. Um, I love my 3DS for that reason. I don't know why the Switch has been so slow with this virtual stuff, this uh, is, retro is stuff. Strange. Because especially considering how a lot of these, uh, Switch especially has um, had a lot of Steam games come over. Um, and it's the reason why I'm assuming they, they haven't ported all of these games directly is because of coding. You know, they have the base code. I'm assuming they have the base code. And they're trying to figure out a way to translate it without using emulation, I guess. I know we were kind of joking about the difference between, like, what is what is it between emulation and virtual console? But that's probably what, what it is in, insofar as what's making it or preventing them from, from doing more with it. But it's still really strange because the software exists on Windows to do it very easily. 
Um, I mean, if, if I'm being cynical, I'd say it's probably not to do with the, the coding at all. I reckon it's actually to do with the, the success of the console, unfortunately, um, for us. Um, with both a, the 3DS in its first half of its life uh, and the Wii U, like, for the entire existence of the thing, um, these were not popular consoles. They were not selling well. Um, they were not... Developers were not working on those consoles. So Nintendo needed something to release on it to keep people picking up those consoles and playing them. And they kept dipping into the, the retro um, with the virtual console to do that. And you notice as the 3DS in the second half of its life, once it really started to pick, off, pick up and get a lot of games on it, Nintendo pulled right back on the virtual console releases. Um, and at the same time, it kind of stuck with the Wii U right through to the end. So I think it's actually to do with the fact that these, the Switch is so popular and there's like 70 games released on it every week. And there was, really was like 70 games released on it this week alone. Um, Nintendo just doesn't see the need to do a virtual console. It doesn't see the, the value in it. Um, and probably, probably does not want to release games on there that will compete with its third-party people because it wants those third-party games to also be successful. So... That's my suspicion of what's probably, you know, behind the, the, the reason they're dragging their heels a little bit. Yeah, I, I would agree with that assessment as a, as a possibility, but I, I don't know. I try to, I try to keep, I try to be positive with Nintendo. <laughs> they're, they're, they're one of the few companies entering 2019 that, that don't have a nasty stain from the prior year. <laughs> we all you love know? Nintendo, but we would just wish Nintendo could be better. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe Apple can acquire them. That would be good. No, Matt. On that note, on that note, nothing. On that on that little bomb. Now Trent's going to yell at me for a bit. But we're going to go to some music. We're going to listen. We're going to go back to the archives. Maybe I know Final Fantasy One. We're going to get some music from Final Fantasy One. Welcome back, everybody. 
Okay, so for the last section of the podcast this week, we don't have Alan around on the podcast, so we can talk about visual novels, because if we try and talk about visual novels when Alan's around, he yells at us, but um, he's not here, so we can. Excellent. Matt, tell us about this new visual novel that you're playing. Um, it is called... I have to remember the name. It's got a long title. Um, it's got a very Japanese visual novel title. It's called How to Sing to Open Your Heart. Um, and it's basically a very quite simple and straightforward sort of romance game where you play as the princess of this kingdom of basically cat people. And you meet a guy amid during some sort of like negotiations with the peace talks with a neighboring kingdom that your kingdom used to be at war with. And then you meet this guy who's like a retainer for the other kingdom's king. And he's very, um, this feels like Nino Kumi too, but instead of visual novel, Like, that's exactly how you describe the plot. I was like, this is everything which happens in Nino Kumi. I know. I was thinking, like, insert any JRPG here, but <laughs> <laughs> you got a guy, there's a girl, there's a king. Yeah. And cat people. There's a bad guy, probably. I don't know. Oh, he's not a bad guy. He's, he, he's well, there might be a bad guy. I haven't got he's that. He's an antagonist. Um, there's, there's a love interest who's a very kind of basically a typical Sunday kind of. He's very abrupt and quite mean. And then does the protagonist have a mentor? No. Okay. Just seeing if it um, fit the. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know. it's, it's the third game in a series that this developer's done, which and they were all kind of mostly self-contained, but then they have links. Like some, like each each game's got a different protagonist and a different. Um, different love interests but then characters from previous games show up in small roles it's it's very as as visual novels go it's very it's quite short and very just straightforward um there's one love interest and either you get together with him or you don't um based on oh, the so choices it's got, that you make it's got decision trees and stuff it's not yeah that, it's not that hardcore of a visual novel that's basically just a, a read through no And that, that's, yeah. All right. About as much as I can tell you about it at this stage. <laughs> um, all right. And the, I guess the one I've been playing is, or finished playing for a review earlier this week and um, really loved was Bury Me, My Love, which is, um, it's a pretty powerful vision novel, really. It's, it tells the story of a, a Syrian refugee, refugee trying to escape into Europe. Uh, but rather than follow her story, you actually play as her husband back in Syria. Uh, and the entire game plays out as a series of text messages back and forth um, where, you know, she's she's telling you what she's doing. And um, at points she asks for your advice or what you're thinking. And you can, um, you've got various choices for responses and so on. The narrative plays out based on that interaction. And um, yeah, it's it's really powerful. It's a story that needs to be told because like I said in my review, a lot of people need to 
develop some empathy for the refugees around the world. Um, and this game is certainly, it certainly aims to humanize them. Um, whereas where I guess the popular media commonly tries to demonize them. Um, so yeah, the, the positive strength of video games, it's a bit unfortunate yeah. to visual novel, I guess if it was a first person shooter, people might actually play it. <laughs> well, well, I almost picked it up myself after after reading the premise, the Syrian refugee, and and the fact that you're playing as the the gameplay is reading the text messages, and just by like intuition, I can see where that story could develop into something like really tragic or or very interesting, um, and just based on that, I was I was interested. But like I mentioned during the break, the only visual novel I've ever played is Danganronpa two, and. I gotta, I gotta admit, after that, I felt like I had given visual novels a, a, a not so fair shake up until then, because um, <laughs> well, I, mean, I really enjoyed you, it. You did start out with you know, one of the very best visual novels that's ever been created. I, I suppose, and, I, and I, did, you, I didn't you, dip you my toes into that. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't dip my toes into that purchase without like reading the reviews and being like, okay, even if even if I don't like visual novels, I'll probably like this. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It it is one of those ones. It's probably not just for people who like visual novels. Whereas the one that Matt was talking about earlier is definitely probably a game for people who like visual novels. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and you know that's good. The good thing, I guess, the great thing about visual novels is there's just so many of them now. Um, whereas even five years ago, ten years ago, you nobody would think to localize a visual novel on any platform. But Everything I, I guess on the DS. <laughs> but I think people discovered that there's an appetite for visual novels out there and that plus the fact you don't need to release them in boxes on store shelves now, uh, you can yeah. do dig I mean, digital distribu distribution, has meant that there's been a whole bunch of localization outfits that have popped up and uh, yeah, it, it's good. Some localization outfits probably need people who are a little bit better equipped with English, I want to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Matt would know. There's a there's a company that's re released a fair few of visual novels on the uh, Switch, and to be fair to them, and this is the nicest way I can put it, the English in those visual novels is broken. Um, and you know, when when you're talking about a visual novel, I think the text is pretty important, <laughs> and if you don't get that right, maybe the game's not going to sit so well. But for the most part, I think localization efforts for these things is, is pretty good and I'm, I'm really happy with the way that there are so many of them coming out and it's just another kind of experience for people that don't necessarily want to play gamey games all the time yeah it could be the greatest love story ever told but if you mess up that grammar really really <laughs> shatters the whole uh, the whole immersion moment well, I I think I think localizing a visual novel will be a great experience because it's not just about you know getting the grammar and the the translation right. It's about making sure the characters are you know tonally different to one another, so that each character has their own personality and isn't isn't just you know a collection of words on a on a screen. That kind of thing is actually really hard to do. Um, yeah. Um, actually, yeah, that reminds me of one other one I've been playing recently, um, called London Detective Mysteria. Oh, that looks good. That's the beta, right? Yeah, it's on it's on Vita. It's coming to PC at some point, but there's no release date for the PC version yet. But that is um it's really good. And just in that way that you made like a, a big part of what makes it so good is the localization is just next level. Um That's Texas, wasn't it? No, that was Exceed. Um Oh, okay. And right. the the it's got the same 
the the lead of the localization team is the same as the person who did led um trails of cold steel and trails of cold steel 2 oh is that uh what's her name um uh Brittany something Brittany is it Brittany? yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, she's a she's a really good localization she's good she's yeah good yeah she's, she's yeah. really talented um and yeah and that's that kind of thing where it's just the english script is so well written that every character has their own their personality just like flies out of the screen and you can even if there were no pictures you could tell who's talking just from the way they talk yeah and that's i guess that's the thing and there aren't that many localization outfits that do it that well uh Exceed is certainly one not that they do many visual novels uh, axis is probably the top visual novel localization yeah. outfit i'd have to say uh yeah. last uh, last year they did Deathmark is a, a good example of the kind of quality that they can do. Uh, Deathmark, funnily enough, had some weird grammar in it um, in the way that they referred to various characters. But um, the actual, the, the storytelling was just spot on and uh, was a brilliant piece of localization, I think. Uh, the other great ones, uh, probably P-Cube do a good job generally. P-Cube being the guys that localized Steinsgate and... That's a classic. Um, that's one that everybody should play, including people who don't generally play visual novels. Lee, Lee and Trent, I'm talking to you too. You know, uh, I, tried, I, I, tried to it, I just don't play them anymore. Like it's <laughs> weird. Like I love the genre. It's just, it's just like I don't know. Like play Stainsgate. It's a good one. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. Although they've got a they've got a video version of that coming out. They got like a remake, which is all like animated and stuff, that might be a better play, way to go. That's coming out this year. Uh, and then the other great localization outfit for visual novels is um, Idea Factory, of course, with Hakuoki. Mm. Not that they localize nearly as many of their games as they probably can. They should, but yeah, when they do it, they do a good job. It'd be nice if um, something that a lot of people don't know... Um, Koei Tecmo actually has a big visual novel business in Japan and they just refuse to localize any of them into English. Um, what? Yeah, they've got a huge visual novel business. Like mm. at TGS every year, uh, probably about a quarter of their stand is dedicated purely to visual novels. Um, what's the name of the group? Uh, Ruby, um, Ruby Party. Party. Yeah, Ruby Party's the label. And um, yeah, the, they're very popular apparently. And the, certainly the art looks great, but because they're Otome games, as in, um, I guess, games designed pro principally for women about romancing men. Uh, I, I think that Koei, for whatever reason, hasn't seen a market for that out in the West and has ignored the fact that Otome games actually sell pretty well in the West. But anyway. And yeah, Koei was the, um, basically invented that genre. That's with, right. Um, a game called Angelique in the mid 90s, I think. Um, for Super Nintendo, which is basically that, that kind of thing. So it's sort of a visual novel, but with an emphasis on your decisions affecting your relationship with the various boys and choosing how you, how who you end up falling in love with, um, which was a result of what's her name? The 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 president of Koei's wife and Ke Keiko. Oh, yes. Um, I can't remember her name. Basically the most powerful woman in J in Japanese video games. Yeah. Um, and she 
yeah, it, it, basically that idea came about because she was one of the most senior people in this game company, and she was like, well, why are all these games being made for boys? Why aren't there any games being made that would be interesting, interesting for girls to play? And that was sort of how she came up with that idea and ended up recruiting pretty much an entirely female development team most of whom had never made a game or had no experience and she was like well we want you you want your input on it so we'll hire you and train you up and teach you how to do it so you can make something and yeah it would she yeah she's she's great i uh saw her speak at tokyo game show one year there was it, it was great it was this panel um of very senior people in the industry and it was like old old japanese dude for capcom old japanese dude for square enix old japanese dude for some other company and it was just like they're all over 60 and um there she was by herself you know standing standing out quite significantly showing that the japanese industry is still very male driven but there are a couple of people doing great work a couple of women doing great work in among that and um certainly she's one and Koi. still going strong yeah Koi wouldn't exist without her exactly yep absolutely all right on that note, we'll wrap up the podcast for this week. We've actually gone over time, so sorry to assail your ears, listeners, for so long. But thanks for tuning in, as always. And um, what music should we finish on? What's a nice bit of music, Matt, from a visual novel? Oh, let's finish with Danganronpa music. That'd be yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Danganronpa. We'll finish up with some Danganronpa music. Enjoy the, the mad brilliance of it. And we will be back next week with plenty more to talk about. Thanks very much.
Most powerful Yokai.